Hello, and welcome to another message from Aldinga Bay Baptist Church. If you'd like to find out more about us or what we believe, please visit aldingabaybaptist.org.au. I just pray that you speak to our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. It was very cool last Sunday if you were here uh, and you've turned up again. Well done. Uh, so today we are um, back into uh, well, back into the Exodus series and it's our very last sermon from uh, the book of Exodus, looking at chapters 33 through the end of the book, chapter 40 pretty much. Um, as I reflected on it this week, what about this? there's a number of subjects that really come out of this. When you read it through, it's about consequences for sin. That's one of the things that really comes at us. But secondly, it's about turmoil. It's about confusion. Uh, It's uh, about anxiety in many ways. And then it's about the character of God. They are very much the themes that run through this. And I think, well, that's good because they touch our lives in some very real ways, those themes, don't they? Uh, You know, we... We can be people that struggle with with turmoil a great deal. And, you know, there's, there's confusion in our lives about why things are happening. Anxiety can be something which is a constant companion, as unwanted as it, it is. It's a constant companion. And you probably all, no doubt, would know what it's like. You know, we sometimes go to bed at night and you just can't sleep because this thing's just running around in your mind. It's so bad, it's worse at 2 o'clock in the morning than what it is at 8 p.m. And it runs through your life. And eventually you do go to sleep and you wake up in the morning and, and you wake up and you feel refreshed, kind of, but then only for a couple of moments and then you remember that thing that you were worried about and it's, it's back there again, chewing you up and it's just turmoil. So it's a really applicable passage, really, isn't it? Because sometimes that turmoil is there because of things in our own life, sin in our own life, failings in our own life, and we need to put that right. We need to work it through, take it to God, maybe work it through with other people. But then other times, uh, it's not because of us so much, maybe it's a failure of somebody else that's in our life. And that person, their life is, you know, is so intertwined with ours that there's just no escaping it. And that uh, their life is heading for a train wreck, or maybe it already is a train wreck. But because your life is so connected with theirs, uh, it can't help but really bring turmoil into your own life. These things are all really true, and these are things that are actually found in this text for us today. And that's where it's so good, it's so applicable. It's you know, I love preaching through God's word because it's like, ah, oh, that's amazing. It just speaks straight into our lives today. It's exactly the same. So turmoil. And so the question really is: uh, is there hope? You know, how can we find hope during pretty tough times? That's what I hope us to think, want us to think about this morning. Three points. First of all, of all it's disaster. Uh, secondly, it's intercession. And then thirdly, it's a subject of uh, the nature of God himself. So let me take you through this passage. It starts in chapter 33. We only read a little bit of it. This is how verse 33, well, chapter 33, verses 1 to 5, kick off this section. The Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hittites, the Jebusites. 
Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. And when the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and nobody put on his ornaments, for the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. Wow, that is a disaster, isn't it, when you hear that? It, is, it goes back to last week's sermon, uh, the story of the golden calf. If you weren't here, let me give you a quick reminder. Essentially, the nation of Israel was at the foot of Mount Sinai, and they'd been given the Ten Commandments. You know, God presents himself to them, and he says, you know, you're my treasured possession. You know, follow me. People say, oh, we'll obey all that you say, Lord. All the Lord has said, we will do. But then, within around about a month, around about 40 days, in fact, afterwards, after this, you know, this beautiful power of God being shown and, and uh, their declaration before God that they're going to follow him, 40 days later, uh, they take off their earrings, they give them to Aaron, and he melts them down, and he turns them to a golden calf, last week's sermon. And then he presents the golden calf to the people of Israel, and they say, These are your gods, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. Oh, wow. It's, and they worship the calf. It's kind of, if you read through that chapter, I said it last week, it's hard to overstate how deep their sin was in worshiping the golden calf. It's kind of, it's kind of, uh, Similar to the idea of a, a young couple standing at the vows at the, at the altar of last week, standing at the altar, making their vows to one another, and then while they're still on their honeymoon, inviting somebody else into their bed. It's like, wow, it's just a deep, deep sin that's gone on here. That's what's happened with the nation of Israel. And so, as a result of that, you read this passage here, and it starts off really positive thing, oh, this is going to be good. God says, you know, go from here, you're going to go to the, the land flowing with milk and honey. Well, that's where they were headed, Canaan. So I think this is a good thing. Uh, God says, I'm going to drive out your enemies, the Canaanites, I'm going to give you the land, I'm going to send my angel before you. So, oh, that's really good. But then the sting in the tail, isn't it, is that, but I will not go with you, lest I can shoot you. God is hot in his anger toward them. And rightfully so, because they have been so unfaithful. But it is really disastrous, isn't it? God says, I'll give you some of my blessings, but you cannot have them. I'm not going to work with you. And that's huge. Just, you know, we can appreciate that in and of itself, can't we? God says, you cannot have me. But it's, it's even bigger, in a sense, uh, if you like the if you're lacking sort of appreciation for that, it's even bigger because the very thing that God had been promising them at the Mount Sinai, at Mount Sinai around the commandments is this is about he is a God of his presence. He is a God of relationship. And this this is massive section from chapter, chapter 25 all the way to chapter 31, which is all about that subject. It's the, it's the we sort of we didn't really spend any time in it, but if you flip back through your Bibles, you'll see what it's about. It's got all this detail. And it's one of those things, if you're reading it uh, late at night, you might tend to nod off because it's got all this detail about how to build the tabernacle, you know, and how big it's supposed to be and, and what the furnishings of the tabernacle is supposed to be. And then there's the uh, Ark of the Covenant and what's, what it's to be made out of and the priestly garments. And, and it's, it's detail after detail for seven chapters or something. And you think, goodness me, what's that got to do with me? 
Well, it's actually got a lot to do with the story because it's about, as I said, it's about relationship, and it comes out really clearly because in chapter 25, at the beginning of that section, it's just the section is just after the people saying, all the Lord has said we will do. And it's sandwiched between that and the story of the Ark of the Covenant, right? And so between these stories of the Ten Commandments and the and sorry, and the uh, Golden Calf, between these two stories is this passage all about the building of the tabernacle. God says to Moses, speak to the people of Israel and get them to make a contribution, ask them to make a contribution for, you know, for the building of the tabernacle and let them make a sanctuary. This is the point, verse 8, and let them make a sanctuary that I, that I may dwell with them in their midst. So that's the key verse, making these things. And there's all this detail about all these things about worship in order that I might dwell with them. So it's a, hopefully we can appreciate that it's a big part of all that's going on with God bringing the Israelites out of Egypt, camped at the foot of Mount Sinai, on the way to Canaan, that we're going to build these things, that you might worship me, that I might dwell with you in your midst. But then comes the golden calf, and the deal's off. God says, no longer am I going to dwell in your presence. I'm not going to be with you. So it is a disastrous word. And in fact, it's, it's Genesis 3 really all over again in many ways, isn't it? In Genesis 3, you know, Adam and Eve, they're created for a relationship with God and they walk with him in the garden. But then they rebel and God makes them clothing, he provides for them, but he sends them out of Eden, away from the presence of the Lord. And that's always the case. It's probably just worth pausing on that and remembering that it's always the consequence for sin in our lives is we are no longer walking with God. We're removed from his presence. It's a disastrous thing, and this is a disastrous thing for them. So that's just something I want you to hear, and I, I hope you can appreciate it to some degree, uh, but that's exactly what's going on in this passage. It looks like a dark story, really. I'm not going with you. You think, where do you go from there? And God says, that's it, deals off. Where do you go from there? Well, fortunately, it's not where the story ends. It goes on. And the reason why it goes on, and actually there's a positive end to all this, is because of one person. That's the way that it reads. The reason why the story changes is because of Moses and because he is interceding for the people of God. And it's really powerful thought, you know, the second point of the sermon, intercession. I want us to think about this. Intercession. This is how it works. Moses is a unique character, okay? So you back in chapter 33, come down to verse 7, and it says, tells us a bit about Moses. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And down a few verses later, thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks with his friend. That's a pretty cool verse, isn't it? God spoke with Moses face to face as a man speaks with his friend. Moses takes this tent, he pitches it outside the camp. So it's actually you know, reminding us that God's not dwelling with his people anymore. Moses gets this tent that he's got, not the tabernacle, but he gets this tent and he takes it outside of Israel, a long way out, puts it up, and that's where he meets with God. Everybody can just watch on from a distance because the point is being made again, I'm not dwelling with you anymore, God. 
what it says. Don't put the tent up inside the camp. Go well outside, and that's where the tent is. I'm not going to dwell with you anymore, but Moses is there, and he's different. He's praying, and God speaks to him like a man was speaking with his friend. Like, wow, that's that pretty cool. It's, in fact, it's really cool because it says something about Moses, and we remember Moses. Probably says something to us as well about how there's always hope. Because Moses, remember what he used to be like? He used to be a murderer. He, he kills an Egyptian. He hasn't got a great track record. He hasn't, he hasn't been a stellar person all of his life. And then when you know he, he basically, when he leaves Egypt, he goes to Midian and he, he just thinks his life is pretty much over. He's just going to be a shepherd from now on. Nothing special. And then when God does speak to Moses you know, in the burning bush, he's reluctant. He's reluctant to follow God and do what God wants him to do. He just doesn't really trust God very much at that point in time. There's lots of failings in Moses' life, and there's others as well that we read about. But God redeems him, and look at him now. He's a, he's a different person, a person that God is really using in an amazing way. So he's praying, and the thing that he's praying when he's in that tent of meeting is he's praying for the people. And we get an idea of this in chapter, again, verse 12, same chapter 33. This is what Moses says. Moses said to the Lord, because God said, I'm not going to go with you. And Moses is struggling with this. He's wrestling with God. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you've not let me know whom you will send with me. If I found favour in your sight, please show me your ways that I may know in order to find favour in your sight. Please consider this nation, your people. So he's just pleading with God. He goes a little bit more and he says, if your presence, God, will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. Do not make us leave Mount Sinai. For how shall we know that I found favour in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct? I and your people from every other people on the face of the earth. So you get a bit of an idea of what he's saying. Moses here in this passage, he's grieved. We talked about anxiety before. You know, I think that's probably partly what's going on here. Moses is he's anxious, he's confused. He says, I don't know why it is that God you will not go with us. I mean, I'm sure he understands it at an intellectual level. Sin brings separation from God and all of that. But emotionally, and plus the covenant God's made with these people, Moses is just pleading with God. Dear God, he's saying, you're, just, you're supposed to feel the weight of this. It's a pretty deep thing that's going on here. Dear God, Moses is saying, Lord, you said that we found favour in your sight. You said that I found favour in your sight. You're asking me to lead these people and you're going to send an angel, but I don't know who the angel is. I need you to go with us, God. I need you to lead us out of this place through the wilderness and into the, the promised land. If you're not going with us, then what makes us different from anybody else? So Moses is praying. He's asking God for to, to, to intervene here. And what's really interesting about the passage is that God does. God listens to Moses. And it says in verse 13 that God said, This very thing that you have spoken, I will do, but you have found favour in my sight. And I know you by name. That passage there, does anything sort of strike you about it? You know, when you hear that, Moses is praying, God has said, I'm not going to go with these people. And then Moses prays, and then God changes his mind and says, Okay, I will go with you. 
Sounds a little bit like chapter 32 as well. You know the story of the golden calf. Remember the golden calf story last week where um, God is really angry after that episode. And he says to Moses, get out of my way. I'm going to consume these people. I'm going to destroy them. And I'm going to make a nation out of you. And again, Moses prays them. And he's a really honest prayer. And he says, dear God, remember the covenant that you made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What are the other nations going to say? He says, you're the one that brought them out of Egypt. They're not my people, they're your people. And then it's a really interesting text there because it says that God, God changed his mind. God didn't destroy the people of God. I reckon this is a, a really interesting point, and I, I think it needs to be lost on us. Perhaps it needs to be lost on us, but these prayers of Moses changed the mind of God. What was supposed to make of that? Because I thought that God was sovereign. You know, God ruled this world. That nobody can tell God what to do. And that's true, isn't it? God is sovereign. No one can tell him what to do. Who can make straight what God has made crooked, it says in Ecclesiastes. What are we supposed to make of this sort of thing? In some ways, it's a paradox. You know, it's, it's kind of hard to get your head around what's happening between Moses and God there. I, don't, I, I can't fully appreciate it. In fact, the more that I, I study, the more I think about it, the more I think, oh, this is really a paradox. I don't, I don't understand, you know, all that's going on between Moses and God at this point in time. Not fully. But I do think this passage is supposed to speak into our hearts very practically when we're struggling with different things and there's, there's anxiety in our lives and turmoil. It speaks into our lives because it actually tells us something about prayer. Something that we need to learn. See, God is God is sovereign. He does rule over all things completely. But God is also a person. And that means that God listens, God feels, and he loves. And because of those two things, we can have great confidence coming to God. I appreciate it. Um, a quote I put on the front of the newsletter this week, actually, is by one of my favourite theologians, D.A. Carson. Here it is. I'll just turn it on. There we go. It says, the perverse, the perverse rather, and the unbeliever will appeal to God's sovereignty to urge the futility of prayer in a determined universe. Or, he says, they will also appeal to passages depicting God as a person, including those that speak of him as relenting, like this passage here, to infer that he's weak or he's fickle or he's impotent, once again concluding that it's useless to pray. This kind of makes sense, doesn't it? You know, it's, it's kind of useless to pray because everything's already worked out. It's just fate. Or it's useless to pray because, you know, maybe God's a bit fickle. Or maybe even maybe the other way probably is more true, that... It's not just the perverse and the unbelieving, but I think it's Christians sometimes that we, we sometimes struggle to really pray, don't we? You know, because we think, oh, maybe God's just got this worked out. It's just whatever's going to be is going to be. Or we might think he doesn't really listen to me. He's not really hearing my prayer. I bet you feel that way sometimes. I bet there's plenty of times when you say, I don't know. I don't reckon God's really listening. You know, I don't know what to make of this. In fact, I wonder, I wonder to what degree do you actually wrestle with God in prayer? 
Are, you know, when it comes to our prayer life, what's it like? Do we sort of just get up and you know, drive into work and say, oh, I pray today, dear God, please bless me, bless the kids, bless my parents, please help us with this. Amen. You know, is, is that sort of the substance of our prayer life? Maybe it's a little bit more than that, but I, I reckon, actually, there's probably a fair bit of that that goes on. I mean, do, do you actually get on your knees often and wrestle with God? Could you imagine Moses here? You know, this, this is concise. What we have here in this you know, small text is concise. Moses went, pitched his tent outside the camp and prayed and spoke with God as man speaks with his friend. And then we have a few of the words where he's wrestling with God about what God's doing, about not going with them. But it's pretty concise. I think Moses would have been on his knees for hours, don't you? Maybe, maybe days. Dear God, wrestling, pleading. Do we ever do anything like that? Do you ever do anything like that? Do you spend time on your knees before God? Or, or is it more the idea that I don't even think heaven's listening? God's got it all worked out. Whatever will be, will be. You have this you know, fatalistic mentality. Or, I don't think God really cares what I've got to say. Because if you do think that, it will stop you from praying. And I reckon it does stop lots of people from praying. But I'm not supposed to think that way. As Carson goes on, he says, But the faithful will insist that properly handle both God's sovereignty and his personhood become reasons for more prayer, not reasons for abandoning prayer. It's worth praying to a sovereign God because he is free and can take action as he wills. As he wills. In other words, he's all-powerful. He can do whatever. Nothing's too hard for him. And it's worth praying to a personal God because he hears, responds, and acts on behalf of his people not according to blind rigidities of exorable fate. You know, it's beautiful, isn't it? God is listening. God is powerful and he's listening. And that's the point that I need to hear from that passage there. Because I want to encourage you, when you're feeling in turmoil, when anxiety is really biting, to be somebody that gets on your knees, and really wrestles with God because he is there and he's listening. Jesus tells us so many wonderful things about prayer, doesn't he? He says, you know, people ought always to pray and not give up. Jesus is telling them, pray to your heavenly Father. So what is it that maybe is the turmoil in your life? I really want to encourage you to pray for it. And probably here's a tip as well. When Moses prays, he prays along the lines of the revelation of God. So he says, God, I'm asking you to do what you've said that you will do, essentially. You're the God of the covenant. You said you'll never leave your people, that you will, that you will bring them through, that you will walk with them. You're the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You said you were going to make a great nation from them. Them, and he pleads with God according to those things. I think, well, that's what I need to do too, isn't it? You know, if, I've, if I'm praying for things... Or for people, and I'm really worried about them, then there's some promises that I've got, some revelation that God has said. But if my kids are wayward, if your kids are wayward, then maybe they, there was a time when they bowed the knee to Jesus. It's so good to be able to go to him and say, God, you said that you and Jesus, you said you'd never ever leave or lose one of them. Do you bring them through the other side 
So I am pleading with you right now. Well, God, you said that you desire that none would perish, but all would come to repentance. So I'm really pleading with you for this person and get on your knees and keep on going with that. Well, Lord, you said that you would make all things work together for good to those who love you, to those who are called according to your purpose. And I don't know what that's going to look like, and I may never know what that looks like, but in this situation with all this going on, I'm just praying that you would take this circumstance and you would use it in a mighty way for good. See, Moses is a great example to us here because he is somebody that sees the disaster. God said, I will not go with them. And it was such a big thing that God had promised to them. It was all about the tabernacle and you know the religious thing that was being, the religious observances and practices that were being set up at that point in time. And then God says, deals off because you walked away from me. Moses pleads. And the beautiful thing is that God changes his mind. God acts. So God listens to our prayer. And I want to drive it home. I've done my best. Hopefully. Hopefully that is something that changes us, that we're encouraged by. One last point, the nature of God. This is a really big thing in this text as well, and it brings together the whole of the book of Exodus, really. So the story here is the nature of God. Again, it looks dark. Moses is praying. God says that he will listen. And then the next thing that happens in this passage is that Moses has obviously been feeling really discouraged. This is a big thing that all the all this happened. It's you know, it's massive. It smashes the, the, the two you know tablets that have the handwriting of God, the Ten Commandments on them as he comes down the mountain last week's sermon. It's, this is a big thing. Moses is feeling devastated about all that's taking place. And so he asks for something. After God has said, I'll do it. Moses says this to God, just quite simply in verse 18. He says, please, God, show me your glory. Ah. Oh, what's that about? Well, I think, it's, like I said, he's, he's feeling devastated. He really wants to see a vision of God so that he can go forward and lead these people from him. And the beautiful thing is that if you know the story, God does. Uh, God says to Moses, come up the mountain one last time, up Mount Sinai. Goes up there and God says, I'll put you in you know, the cleft of the rock. I'll place my hand over you and I'll walk past and then you can see my back. It's like, wow, that's pretty cool, isn't it? It's, you know, seeing that the back of God as he goes past, he's so glorious you can't actually see his face in its glory. So God says, I'll let you see my back. And that's what happens. But the big thing about this passage is not so much that Moses sees God's back. It's what God says when he goes past. And this is the Bible reading that Nick gave to us. Listen to what God says in chapter 34, verse 6. He says, The Lord passed before him, and he proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. That's God's proclamation. It's about two things, really. It's pretty easy to see. One is about judgment. You know, I'll by no means clear the guilty. God says, I'm a God of justice. I will follow things through and sin will be dealt with and it will be harsh. But he doesn't just say that. He also says, in fact, the main idea that we're supposed to get out of this passage 
is that to the penitent, to those that actually say, Dear God, I am sorry for my sin. Listen to what God says again. The Lord, the Lord, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands and forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. That's really beautiful. That passage there that I just read to you, that first part, just pops up again and again in the Old Testament, in the Psalms, it's in the Prophets. And it's there to encourage people to go astray, saying no matter how far you've fallen, no matter how bad you have been, God is a God who is steadfast, loving, merciful, loves to forgive. God finds a way. It's repeated again and again. In fact, there's one place where it's repeated where it's quite comical. It's actually used as an excuse not to follow God because he's like that. It's the story of Jonah. Remember Jonah, he, you know, God says to him, go to the people of Nineveh and preach repentance to them. And Jonah's an Israeli and the Ninevites are their arch enemies because God's going to smite the Ninevites. That's exactly what Jonah wants to see happen. Destroy them, God. So he runs away, but you know, God intervenes and he ends up in Nineveh. You know, probably feeling a little, you know, uh, sticky, you know, as he arrives there. But he arrives in Nineveh and he preaches repentance to the Ninevites and they repent. And listen to what Jonah says. Uh, Lord, this is not what I said when I was in my own country. That's why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. So it's exactly the same words that God says to Moses there in Exodus chapter 34. See, this is what God wants us to know about him. God makes a way. God is the one who reaches out. God is the one who makes a way. And Moses ends up worshipping God at that point in time as a result of that. He says in chapter 34, Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. And he said, If I've now found favour in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us to your inheritance. I reckon someone shut that door, because that'll solve that alarm pretty much. I think we do that. Thanks. But, um, so I don't want you to be distracted by the beeping. You know, it's just great timing, isn't it? But uh, so I want to drive this point home, is that Moses worships when he hears that God's a God of steadfast love. You know, and he prays, God is true, we're a stiff-necked people, but please take us as your inheritance. And the beautiful thing is that God does, because the very next thing I read in my Bible is the covenant is renewed. And God says to them, I'm going to take you to the land of Israel. I'm going to drive out those people that stay away from worshipping their gods, make no other gods, worship me is what God says. And then the very next thing that happens after that is Moses comes down with two new tablets of stone. The covenant's renewed. His face is shining because of the glory of God. He's been in the presence of the glory of God. And then the rest of the passage, the rest of the book, actually goes back to making a contribution for the building of the tabernacle and the priestly garments. And all those things that we read earlier, that I read to you earlier, in chapters 25 to 31, it goes back into that with all of the detail because God is saying, I am your God. 
And I'm going to walk with you. In fact, the book ends with these words in chapter 40. Then the cloud covered the tabernacle of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and the fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. That's beautiful. That's how Exodus finishes. God is with them. God is walking with his people. God is a God who is long-suffering and he forgives. You bring all that together and I think, well, that preaches the gospel pretty well to us, doesn't it? When you hear that. We are people that are rebellious and we go our own way. That is true of absolutely every one of us. And that's why we're here today. We're rebellious, but we've heard the gospel. Jesus came into the world. God found a way because he's a God of loving kindness. He came into the world. Jesus, he didn't just sweep sin under the carpet. Jesus took it upon himself. He became our substitute. He was the one that was found guilty in our place, even though he was innocent. And God is offering us forgiveness. He's offering us forgiveness so that we can be in a relationship with him because God wants us to walk with him. He wants to walk with us. That's the beautiful thing. So no matter what you're going through with the turmoil and the struggle and the anxiety, whatever it might be, we need to realise there is hope. Because it doesn't get much darker than what it, how dark it was in this story with the Israelites and the golden calf. It doesn't get much darker. But God says he's a God who makes a way. There is always hope. And my encouragement or the application with is that we be people that pray, that we take God seriously and we realise he is listening. Let's come before him and let's seek him on behalf of others and ourselves and ask for his grace. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this book of Exodus and how it's spoken to us, I think, in many ways, at many levels. Um, it's told us about your loving kindness and your faithfulness, but ultimately it's told us you're a God of relationship. And you're a God who makes a way. You take the initiative yourself because you are the Lord, faithful, righteous, long-suffering, a God of steadfast love. There's every reason to worship you, Lord. We commit ourselves to you and ask for your grace. In Jesus' name. Amen.